as we continue in our sermon series through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, or we might say the book of the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're coming now into chapter 5, beginning the reading at verse 12, and this is part one of another two-part uh, little sermon uh, on, on this particular passage. This morning is kind of a, a little bit of a flyover. We're going to dig more deeply, uh, exegetically into it next week as well and finish the chapter, God willing, uh, and uh, particularly in that verse of uh, chapter 5, 29, when Peter says we must obey God rather than men. I'm not going to address that this morning, but I'm not ignoring it. We'll, if God wills, we, we come back to that next Sunday. So let us ask our good and gracious Father who has given us um, the word of His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit in Holy Scripture, infallibly and inerrantly, let us ask Him now to grant us His Spirit to give us hearts to believe His Word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we indeed thank You that You have called us by Your Son, Jesus Christ, out of darkness into Your marvelous light. We pray for the light of Your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and to illumine our hearts so that we might receive Your Word in faith we pray, O oh Lord, that you would speak to us deeply and do your work in us for the glory of your name. Through Christ, our leader and Savior. Amen. Let us hear the word of God. It is written. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, 
The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, in the historical context of Acts chapter 5, we are still within months of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, ascension into heaven, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. These are very early days in the life of Jesus' new covenant church. All of the events about which we are reading take place in Jerusalem. You remember, prior to his ascension into heaven, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus told his apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that geographic outline of the Great Commission Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth, can be visualized in concentric circles with Jerusalem right in the center at ground zero and then with the mission of the church expanding outward from there. Now there's a hint in verse 16 that the gospel is beginning to make inroads in the towns around Jerusalem, that is the countryside of Judea, But at this point, those people were coming into Jerusalem to be miraculously healed by the apostles rather than the apostles going out of Jerusalem into Judea. And we need to remember also at this point that all of the believers in Jesus were faithful Jews who were continuing to worship God in the temple. At this point, you see, there was no such thing. There was no such notion. There was no, there was no new, no new religion called Christianity. But there was a growing conflict between the Jews who believed in and received Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and those Jews who didn't especially among the ruling class of the Jews. And that conflict at this point was increasing and would 
continue to escalate as we shall see. Now, this historical context is important not only so that we can understand the passage, but also in terms of our personal and practical application of it to our lives. I hope I can make that connection. Let's see how this works. In the historical context of Acts 5, the Jewish temple and the priesthood in Jerusalem represented the culmination of some 1,500 years of Israelite identity and worship. The sacrificial system was instituted by Moses via divine instruction after the exodus from Egypt. The Holy of Holies inside the temple was the place ordained by God where God would accept the atoning sacrifice offered by the high priest on behalf of the nation. Jerusalem, with its temple and priesthood, was the center, the very heart of Israelite faith and culture and identity and heritage and worship. It was what Jewish life was all about. Jerusalem as the city of God and the temple as the dwelling place of God and the high priest as the mediator between God and his people. All of that is what gave the Jewish people their very identity, the foundation of their lives, their whole lives, their whole world was centered on this, organized around this, integrated into this. But now, there were these unlearned, common Jewish men who had no authority, had no right whatsoever to preach or teach in the temple. But there they were, preaching and teaching in the temple that the Messiah of Israel had come and had been crucified and had been raised from the dead. And their preaching was being confirmed by miraculous healings. And as recorded in this passage, even a miraculous deliverance from prison by an angel. Now please note, by the way, that the angel opened the prison doors and let the apostles out, not so that they could escape and be safe from persecution, but rather so that they could go right back to the temple and start preaching again. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. What an interesting turn of phrase. All the words of this life, the life of Jesus, the life that is in Jesus, Jesus who is the life. Go do it again in the face of persecution and imprisonment. Go proclaim in the temple 
eternal life through faith in Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah. And that is exactly what they did, which resulted in their being arrested, detained, and interrogated again. So you see, in these early days, there was a lot of commotion. The apostles continued to defy the authority of the high priest and the council and held them accountable for their collusion with Rome in the murder of the Messiah. That threatened to discredit the legitimacy of the religious and political leadership of Jerusalem. As the high priest said to Peter, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, actually, Peter did intend to bring Jesus' blood upon them in a way that would save them from their sins. If only they would repent and believe in Jesus the Messiah. A lot of commotion going on. But here's the deal breaker. Here's, here's the deal breaker. If more and more of these first century Jewish people began to believe that Jesus of Nazareth really were the Messiah, that he was indeed the fulfillment of prophecy such as Isaiah 7, 14, born of a virgin whose name would be called Emmanuel, God with us, who was indeed the promised son of David, whose kingdom was an everlasting kingdom, who was indeed the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of the Lord upon whom was laid the iniquity of us all. Yes, as John the Baptist had declared, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the prophesied mediator of the new covenant through whom God would give his people a new heart and fill them with his spirit and remember their sins no more and dwell with them forever. If this Jesus were in fact this prophesied Messiah and if in fact God had raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand, then do you know what that would mean? to all the first century Jews in Jerusalem and beyond, and especially, do you know what that would mean, especially to the establishment leadership? It would mean the end of their life as they knew it. It would mean the end of their world as they knew it. It would mean the end of how their life, their world, the life and world of the whole Jewish people as it revolved around the temple with its rites and rituals and sacrifices, it would, it would end it all. Now, all of that would come to an end. It would mean the end of the power and control and authority of the high priest and the whole priestly class because the one true atoning sacrifice had been offered by the one true high priest who had offered himself up on a cross and had been raised from the dead 
and exalted to the right hand of God the Father Almighty as the only mediator between God and men. It would mean the end of the distinction between Jew and Gentile because peoples of all nations would be brought into this new covenant relationship with God by the Holy Spirit through the Messiah. You see, if this Jesus' message were true, then it would bring about such a great transformation of old covenant Israel that it would seem like the end of the world for those first century Jews. It would change everything. So what's the connection? Well, first, I hope you realize that I have been speaking hypothetically. Of course, I believe I know that Jesus was and is the prophesied Messiah of Israel who was crucified, raised from the dead, and is now exalted at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as Lord over all. Yes, but my point is, I think it's reasonably fair. I think it's reasonably fair to say that the vast majority of us in this sanctuary right now probably consider ourselves to be conservatives or traditionalists, not merely in the political sense, but in our overall outlook on life. We conservatives, we traditionalists, are by nature comfortable with the status quo, the way things are, what we are used to, the way we do things, our traditions and our customs, including the practice of our faith. We don't like upheaval and radical change. We ordinarily don't like for the fruit basket to be turned over or the boat to be rocked. We would probably rather sit relaxed on the beach than sail in stress on uncharted waters. For the most part, once we get our position the way we like it, we like things the way they are. You get the point? It seems counterintuitive, but you know what? We might just have more in common with the high priest and the Sadducees and the Jewish Supreme Council than we might at first think. And if we put ourselves in their shoes, so to speak, we might gain a deeper understanding, a deeper insight into what it means to be a true Christian. The Lordship of Jesus Christ, when sincerely embraced, brings radical change and transformation to our lives. Jesus changes everything. That's the threat. Jesus Christ, exalted at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, 
demands this radical change in our lives if we are truly to follow him. True faith in Jesus Christ brings radical upheaval, revolution in our lives. Lord, it is not true faith at all. It is not too much to say that coming to Jesus Christ and following him in faith means spiritually the end of our life, the end of our world as we have known it, the beginning of a new life in a world with him at the center as leader, savior, and Lord over all. That was exactly Peter's point when he preached to the Jewish high council as a Jew, preaching to Jews, pleading with them. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, which, by the way, was an accursed death for a cursed man. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter was proclaiming the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus to the very men who were, historically speaking, responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Peter was a Jew preaching to Jews, pleading with them to receive and to embrace Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. Jesus had been exalted at the right hand of God to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. This was a call for the leaders of Israel representing the entire nation and on behalf of the entire nation to repent and to receive Jesus as the Messiah of Israel for their salvation. But that would mean that they would have to surrender everything. Their life, their world, their authority, their power, position, control, identity, tradition, everything that made them who they were. They would have to surrender it all give it all up, hand it over to Jesus Christ as Lord. In other words, in order for them to receive this new life with the forgiveness of their sins and the presence of the Holy Spirit, their whole world as they had known it would have to come to an end. They would, in a sense, have to die. They would have to die the death of their own pride and righteousness by the law, the death of their tradition, the death of everything that made them who they were. Peter's preaching of the gospel to the high priest and the council called them to a, a repentance which was a matter, repentance which was a matter of death and life. Death to the old life in order to live the new life. New life in the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
and the same is true for each of us in our own way. In verse 31, Peter says that God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior. Now, it's an interesting expression. That word leader can be translated differently depending on the context. The Greek word is archagos, archagos. You, you hear the root word arch, meaning first, primary, preeminent. It can, it can mean source or origin. It can refer to a principal person, therefore a ruler. It's the same word that Peter used earlier when he said, you killed the author of life, the archegos of life. It's the same word in Hebrews 12, 2, in which Jesus is called the author, in one English translation, the founder or the pioneer of our faith. It's the same word in Hebrews uh, chapter 2 in which Jesus is referred to as the captain of our salvation. So it, it, it means, in a variety of different ways, it means number one. Number one. Perhaps we could translate it in this case, commanding officer. The point is Jesus is number one. Jesus is the commanding officer. So the question is, who is number one in your life? Who is the commanding officer of your life? And in order for Jesus to be number one, the commanding officer in your life and mine, we've got to give up some things. And mainly, it means we've got to give up ourselves. And that means... We've got to die every day. Stop clinging to our lives and to this world as we would have it. Give it up. Give it all to Jesus as leader and Savior. Repent. It's a matter of death and life. Coming to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith continually I'm not referring to just a a one-time initial experience, but coming to Jesus Christ throughout our lives continually in repentance and faith means undergoing a continual revolution, reformation, and transformation in our lives in which we are continually reordering, reorganizing, reorienting our lives around Jesus as our leader, our number one, our commanding officer and savior. Now look, you can do the practical application from here. You can fill in the blanks in the way in which you relate to other people, either people at work or people you don't know in the grocery store. The way in which you relate in marriage, who's the commanding officer? In the way in which you are raising your children, and deciding how to educate your children, being intentional about that in this world in which we live. Who's the commanding officer? How you spend your money. 
doing that annual review and your time. What's your life about? What's your life about? I have to ask myself that question, always preaching to myself. What's the organizing principle of your life? Where do you begin and where do you hope to end? How do you get from here to there? Who's the commanding officer? Who's the leader? Whose word do you follow? You see, it requires a death. The death of our old life with ourselves at the center, with all of our supposed control and authority and autonomy over our life. That means the right to rule and to set the rules for our life. The death of living life our way in which we live our lives, the way that we want to set our own agendas, pursue our own goals and our pleasures without regard for God and his glory. The death of the old life in which God, Jesus, the Christian faith is simply an add-on, an accoutrement to our life, something peripheral to our life in which Christianity is a kind of external, social, cultural identity. Check the box with no internal significance except maybe as a nice help and boost for us as we continue to live our lives with ourselves at the center. The death of ourselves in terms of finding our identity and our security and our happiness in our family heritage or status in the community or success in business or in any other worldly idolatry. The end of our world insofar as our world is defined by our desire to have everything our way, including our religion. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so the Apostle Paul, whom we will meet in a few weeks, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, himself formerly a member of this Jewish establishment which persecuted the church, would at a later point in his life write to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And Galatians 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's a death that has intervened because repentance means death to the old. Because, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Yes, when confronted with the call to repentance and to surrender all to Jesus, we may have more in common with the high priest and Sadducees than we would like to think. When they heard the apostles' call to repentance and faith in Jesus, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. 
That's how ingrained our rebellion against God really is in our fallen nature. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. That's how ingrained our desire to rule our own lives really is. And that's the reason that the call to repentance is first of all a call to death. Death in union with Christ on the cross in order that we might live in union with Christ in his resurrection life. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the glorious, saving gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And in his name, we pray that your Holy Spirit would so work your word in our hearts and minds and souls that we might be more nearly conformed to the likeness of your Son and live even now on earth as citizens of heaven to the glory of your name. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith as we say together the Philippian Creed based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count the quality of God for things to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory.